You can turn to uh, 1 Corinthians 7 or type it in if you're going to type it instead of turn. It's been a, a just kind of a, I guess you would say it's a standard week, but it's been a busy week in the life of Redeemer. Um, I've had weddings this week. Um, there's a new baby born this week. Um, folks getting good news, folks getting hard news. Um, the students went and served this week and served well, worked hard and in hot conditions, just as a reminder of the grace that God gives us as a family, as a church. And so, grateful to be a part of this with y'all. Um, if you, as you're turning, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 7. If you haven't been with us for very long, um, you probably have at least picked up on the fact that we preach just kind of through books of the Bible. And so, earlier it was Exodus. Um, after we preached through Exodus, now we've been in 1 Corinthians for the last couple months. I mean, this, for the last seven years, has just kind of been our M.O. If, if we just pick a book, we alternate between the Old Testament and the New Testament, we just preach through it. I'm believing that all of God's Word is valuable, that all of God's Word is sufficient. Um, it forces us to preach texts that we wouldn't typically just turn to. Um, it allows us to see the flow of the author's um, intent as, as the book is put together and compiled. Um, and it, but it also… Um, one of the things is it helps us when, when maybe your pet sin gets hit on, right? You're not thinking, man, who, who told Jeremy this week, right? It's just the next passage up. And so we, the, the Spirit can move in that where it's, it doesn't feel quite as personal, even if it is very personal. Um, and, and all that being said, 1 Corinthians is a letter written um, t- from Paul, who's in Ephesus, to the church in Corinth who is living, although it's 2,000 years removed, in a, in a society that has a lot of similarities, right? Corinth is a very independently driven town. People have been able to pull themselves up by their bootstraps there. Um, it, there's more wealth there than we would find um, in, in West Texas, although with, with the oil field, right, like the, that component is there too. But part of the thing is, is that that there is kind of just a worldliness that has developed in Corinth because of the wealth that folks from all corners of the world have, have flocked there. And so all the different religions, philosophies, cults, all these mindsets and ideas have come. And with it, a lot of, of, of sexual sin and, and the, the vice that you would see in a, in a port city just has made up Corinth. And so Corinth is kind of this major city that has this independent spirit and then is just filled with worldliness. And so Paul is writing to the, this group of believers who are there, you know, this first generation believers, and he's saying, look, your job, right, is to reflect the image and the character of God in this city who really has no desire for Jesus. He's like, we're not going to build a temple that's going to let people know, like, a temple to Artemis or a temple to Diana. It's going to be, this is a temple, there's no temple to Yahweh in Corinth. He says, we, y'all, Together, we are the temple of God here. The Spirit of God lives and dwells within each of us and, in, and with us corporately. And as we reflect His image to a world that is far from Him, right, they begin to get a glimpse of who He is and His character. And He says, and in that, there's power. Because I'm not coming with convincing words. I'm not coming with great rhetoric. I'm coming with something that's true. And the fact that it's true means there's power because you've been converted by it. Now, we live in a culture where the, the cross has, and, and the church has had a, a greater influence, has seemingly lost influence, 
And, and really what it is, it's not that the church has lost influence, it's that kind of the, the fat that has been around the church, this thing that has looked like Christianity that really wasn't, has been cut away. That, that the remnant has remained and is, and is faithful, and there's less political influence and there's less um, folks who want to applaud Christianity. And so we begin to look at this, the Corinth situation and go, hey, there's a lot of similarities for us here of what does it look like. And so Paul has said, look, we're going to talk about some really practical things. And he's talked about civil lawsuits, and he's talked about um, sexual sin. And he says, look, if it's within the church, we're going to judge it. We're going to deal with it. But if it's outside the church, we don't judge that because they don't walk with Jesus. And it's like, and if you're worried about vindication, God is going to vindicate. And so we want to live with godly wisdom and not with worldly wisdom that will fade away. And so that's kind of been where we've been for the first six chapters. And as we pick up this morning in, in 1 Corinthians 7, um, we're going to continue to look at some gospel implications specifically in relationships um, in regards to sexuality um, over the next few weeks. And remember in 1 Corinthians 6, he has told them that, that the Corinthians had this kind of, this idea of the body, it just didn't matter, like in regards to, hey, we eat because we're hungry, and then at some point God's going to destroy our stomach because we're going to go be to heaven with him. And so it's the same way, it's just as we get hungry, we should feed it. He's like, as, as we have sexual urges, we should just fill those desires as well, because it's just a body. And he reminds them, look, there's a resurrection. Christ was resurrected. Your body will be resurrected. The body matters. And 1 Corinthians 6 ends just kind of with this idea of like, look, we want to flee immorality. We want to glorify and honor God with our bodies. And so we have to talk about some things in 1 Corinthians 6 and in chapter 7 and, and moving forward that quite honestly just maybe make you a little bit uncomfortable, right? That may make you want to blush a little bit, um, and, and there, are, there are things that, as I'm preparing two weeks ago's sermon, this sermon, as I'm looking at the next couple weeks, I'm thinking, am I really going to say that? Like, are we really, really going to do that? Are we really going to talk about that? But the fact is, is we live in an overly sexualized culture, right? Where if there's any blushing left to be done, this is probably where it would happen. Because otherwise, there, there isn't. That as you're watching commercials, right, with your kids that you're constantly grabbing the remote and changing the channel, right? Because you never know what's going to come up. As you're thinking about the radio and the songs that come on, or if you're thinking about your kid having access to you, like, we live in an overly sexualized culture. The world is talking about sexuality and about gender and about marriage and about these things. So the church has to because the church actually has something to say about it that's healthy and helpful and that it, and it matters. And the church's tendency has been this. It's either to be very Victorian about it, and so it's like we know it's there, but we're not going to address it, which isn't helpful. Or it's been like, hey, we want to compete with the world, and so you, you'll see sermon series like um, Christians have great sex too, right? And it's like we want to compete with kind of this, this sexualized culture, neither of which are, are super healthy because we actually have some answers we actually have a standard, and we have some expectations that, that Scripture gives out that are healthy and, and are good. And we are raising children and grandchildren in this culture. You don't get to ignore it. We don't get to put our head in the sand. We have to address it. And the fact is, is if you're thinking, well, I don't have kids. I don't have grandkids. I'm not around them. I'm not working with students. Well, you have family members 
and neighbors and coworkers who are hurting and have been broken by this culture and this world that says that you should never be satisfied, you should never be content, there's always more, what you're doing is not enough. And so what we want to begin to offer is that there's a better way, that the way that we look at, at, at sex and relationships is actually a means of worship. And that is far better than a simple message of stop it, don't do it, right? It's just not helpful, and it's certainly not powerful. And so, if you're not uncomfortable, you probably will be. Um, you, there's probably some tendency you're already to think, why did I show up this morning squirming in your seat? Um, there may be even some, some geysers of guilt beginning to already emerge. You're like, oh, crap, Right? because your past is stained. So just, I just want to start and say, like, there is hope, and there is peace, and there is forgiveness. Like, Paul writes about this not with a hammer to condemn. Chapter 7 is actually going to be one of the most pastoral passages we're going to see in 1 Corinthians, where Paul kind of drops the hammer and just kind of, instead, just kind of walks through pastorally ministering to different groups. And so he's going to talk to married folks, and he's going to talk to singles, and he's going to talk to to widows and to those who are divorced and those who are considering remarriage. He's going to address all of those things. Um, We have to have a voice as the church. We have to. Like, the church has business here, and a lot of times people want to say, well, I don't want the church to, to have a voice because I don't want there to actually be a standard, right? We want to be so individualistic about relationships and about sexuality that we don't want there to actually be, like, a litmus test, and yet Scripture gives us one. Um, this will be, this is obviously one of the longer introductions that we've had. Um, y'all, at, at, simply because of the, the nature of the job that I have, is that, that I have office hours, that I'm up here during the week, I quite literally have daily conversations in this vein. Whether it's talking about pornography, whether it's talking about um, addiction, whether it's talking about divorce, whether it's talking about marital issues, whether it's talking about frequency of sex and relationships, whether it's, whether it's talking about abuse and harm that has come, right? Like this isn't like, hey, remember that one time months ago when we had to talk about this? It's a daily conversation. And so right now, if you're sitting there going, really? You are the exception. If this has not like hampered your relationship and your marriage, you are the exception to the rule, not the norm any longer. And so, one of the ways that we want to love our neighbors is to become versed in just saying, that, hey, there's hope here, and there's healing here, and there's, there's actually good news here. And so, it means we're going to have to have some conversations that, like, already in my head, I've got this little voice, like, screaming at me, like, quit saying sex, right? Like, and I'm just, like, having to say, like, here we go, you know? Um, there's a reason that we've got the kids upstairs for the next couple weeks. Um, trying to save, if y'all don't want to have that conversation yet, we're trying not to force it on you. So, with all that being said, let's, let's read um, 1 Corinthians, the first part of chapter 7. Paul begins this way. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. 
the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am. But each one has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. We're actually going to stop there this morning. This morning's sermon is going to act as kind of an extended intro. um, And we're going to look primarily um, to the married And then he's going to go on and he's going to walk through, like I said earlier, um, divorce, remarriage, widows, singleness, all of these things through the rest of chapter 7. And so we're going to give next week and possibly two weeks to look at those in more detail. Marriage gets far more um, focus in in a typical church on a typical Sunday. And so we're going to look at it and and kind of lay a foundation for the next couple weeks. But we want to give more time and more focus there. If you'll remember, in 1 Corinthians 5, 9, Paul mentions that he's already written a letter to the Corinthians. And so even though this, for us in Scripture, is 1 Corinthians, there have been other letters to the Corinthians. He's also received some oral reports from Chloe's people, that there's some conversation going back and forth. What verse 1 of chapter 7 lets us know is the Corinthians have actually written a letter to Paul too, right? And so he's referencing it here. And he says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote— And so, for the first time, he's going to address something that they've written to him. We're going to see this through the rest of Corinthians. I think it's five more times that he's going to say, now concerning something that they've written. It's beginning to be this kind of back and forth where he is answering questions that they have given. And so, here's the scene. What has happened is that there has become this idea in the Corinthian church that if you would abstain um, from any sort of sexual behavior— that it will exalt you in some like super spiritual way. That if you, have, have, if you just abstain from all sexual activity, that you can elevate yourself above others. And remember, he's already um, kind of come at them about the fact that they think they're superior, that they think they're wise. Well, this is the one of the ways they've done it, is that those who were no longer either, whether it was due to divorce or they were widows or they had never married and they're going, this is a really sexualized culture. Look how good we are. We're actually better than all of you. And it, and it had bled into, they were actually encouraging people who were married to begin to abstain. And if you can't abstain in marriage, then you should go ahead and get divorced so that you can be as spiritual as I am. And so Paul is addressing this idea that they've said, hey, we think it's not good for a man to touch a woman ever. And so he's going to address this. That, that they, and, and so the way that because we corrupt things, what was also occurring was this, that the church was having couples look at each other and say, well, we'll stay married and we'll abstain from sexual activity because we want to be spiritual. And then they're both like having their cake and eating it too because they're running outside and finding temple prostitutes and other ways to have like liaisons, right? And so they're, they're having these sexual encounters, but they're looking at each other in their covenant marriage and saying, look how spiritual we are. And having others say, well, maybe we should get divorced. And having others say, well, maybe you should never get married. And so the whole thing has gone haywire because people are living in this overly sexualized Corinthian culture 
and now they're being told that if you actually want to be spiritual, then there should be no sexuality at all. And yet the culture is saying, hey, be holy and chaste towards your wife, but then go do whatever you want for pleasure. And so it's just this confusing mixed bag of, of signals and messages, and Paul is going to just like really kindly and pastorally walk them through this, what the implications are of the gospel. And, and so what happens is this, is that often we think of the gospel as simply like, I know Jesus, and then I do my thing. And what Paul is continually telling the Corinthians and telling us is this, that to know Jesus, to trust Jesus, there are implications for the very way, the very life that you live in your marriage or not being married, right? In your job and in your parenting and with your neighbors and with your money, it, with, with your civil matters, that all of these things have implications because the gospel transforms us and it changes us. So I want to give just kind of a quick overview of marriage through Scripture, right, to make sure that we're on the same page. Because a question, and we do a, lot of, we do a lot of marriage counseling up here and do a lot of weddings, and a question that I'll ask every couple that is up here for pre-marriage counseling is this, why do you want to get married? And, right, and you're thinking, oh, that's a simple answer, but if, if I put a mic in your face right now and say, why, why get married? Why not just live together? Why not, right, like... Is there any more commitment? People like lock up and they're like, why do I get married? Right? Like why has the church been such big proponents of marriage? Right? Like because there's an answer to that. And the fact is, is we need to understand quickly is that marriage is not simply for Christians, okay? Like it is a common grace that has been given to humanity, to mankind, right? It's not just for those who love Jesus, but it is best understood in light of the gospel and the cross. There's an element of marriage that is not grasped and is not understood unless you're living it in light of Jesus. And so if we start, we, we go back to the beginning into Genesis um, chapter 2, right, where everything is right and perfect and Adam is there and there's no sin in the world and he's walking with God and yet he is alone. And so God gives, right, makes the first bride and he gives the first bride to the first groom. And he says, let no, let no one tear this apart, right? And that Adam looks at her and is like, like, someone like me. And that we see that marriage is a gift from God, meant to put one man and one woman together, right? That, that, that's the expectation. And then you turn over one page to Genesis 3, and everything goes haywire, and, and sin enters the world because of rebellion and of sin and of not trusting God. And because of that, relationships get hard, right? And, and death enters the world, and sickness enters the world, and pain and childbirth enters the world, and suffering enters the world, and all of these things have fractured. And so it's why now relationships are difficult. And it's why we look at divorce, and why we look at disease, and why we look at suffering, and why we look at marriages that have stayed together, but there's no semblance of marriage left. And we see these things just get corrupted over and over and over again because sin has entered the world. And then you turn over to Song of Solomon, and you have this little um, just kind of poetic book that we find in the Old Testament that says, oh, by the way, um, sex isn't just to have children. It's actually to be enjoyed. And if you weren't aware that it's there, you can have your afternoon reading, right? And, and, and Song of Solomon just says, like, hey, 
marriage and sex is a gift from God, and it's meant to be enjoyed. And the Old Testament then continues to show us, honestly, just the struggles, right? Like, it's just really honest that people jack marriage up all the time in relationships, and so people are taking multiple wives, and they're taking— con- and, and the, it's just honest that we get this wrong most of the time. And then we turn over to the New Testament, and we're skipping, I know, a ton of passage, but in Matthew 19, right, that, that Jesus is being asked about divorce and about marriage. And he says, look, there, there's an out in marriage, but it's, it's due to the hardness of your heart, right? Like, the divorce was not supposed to be a part of this. The, the intent, right, prior to sin entering the world was that man and woman would come together and stay together. Now, he says, look, we live in a broken world, and so there are some things that have come into play here. And so that, and he begins to talk, to, to talk through abandonment. He talks through um, adultery and things like this. But he says that's not the intent, the intent. And he repeats Genesis 2.24, like what, what man, like when they, when God, sorry, what God has brought together, let no man separate. Right? That, that's, that is the intent. And then we go to Ephesians 5, and Paul, writing to the church in Ephesus, says this thing. He says that marriage is actually a mystery. And he says it's a mystery because it's telling a story beyond that one individual couple. It's telling the story of how God loves his bride, and the church is his bride. The church, those who love and treasure Jesus, are the bride of Christ. And so he says if we're the bride, and if marriage is supposed to be reflective of that, that's why we would look at unbelievers and say you're not going to grasp the depth and the significance of of marriage, even though it's still for you. Because God demonstrates His love for us. He doesn't just say He loves us. He shows us, and He showed it at the cross, and He showed it at the cross when you were in rebellion and far from Him, warring against Him. And so in marriage, we show, we demonstrate our love even when the other person is not deserving of it, right? Why? Because we've been loved like that by God, right? And because we're reflecting his very image. And so marriage is two sinners coming together. His love for us is transformative. We're not the same if you're loved by God. You are transformed and changed. And so in marriage, when people say, oh, we changed, of course you changed, right? That's what people do is they change. And so you're going to change, but you're you're looking to change together. As God is transforming you, your marriage is going to be transformed, right? Like that that it's sacrificial, that Jesus didn't have to do that. It cost him something. That marriage cost us something. That it's permanent. God's love for us is permanent. We don't d- doubt, right, whether his love for us is eternal. It is, that's why. It's not just, hey, marriage is a good idea if you stay together. We say that you're supposed to be together forever because it's a reflection of the character of God who loves us eternally forever. Look, we live in a broken world. And so as you're sitting there now, you are scarred by your sin, and you are also scarred by the sin of others. We know that. That we don't sit in a room of people going, intellectually, that sounds beautiful. That we have lived life, and we are hurt, and we are scarred. And so Paul is just kind of pastorally trying to walk them through, saying, we get it. But we want you to know that there is a standard, right? And so if that's the standard, then we're going to fight for that, and we're going we're gonna to lay that out for, for our kids and our grandkids to say, hey, here's what God has given us, and it's a really good gift. And the world has broken it, and the world has corrupted it, and sin has jacked it, and it's still worth fighting for. 
Right? Like that's the, we have to start there. And so Paul then, and I know we're not getting very far in, into this chapter this week. Um, let that be a teaser for next week. So we're going to look here that he's just going to talk about married sexual relationships real quick. And the first thing he's going to say, and, and maybe for us it seems like, well, of course he says this, but it would have been revolutionary then, is this. Look at verse 2. Because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Verse 3, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. Verse 4, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. You see what he's saying? He's like, it's mutual. That in, in marriage, sexual relationship is mutual. In this culture, the man did what the man wanted. And, and, and the wife was his. And what Paul is saying is, no, no. You don't just get to demand. You don't just get to say, this is what we do, and this is how we do it, and this is when we do He's like, there is this mutualness, right? This submission to one another. That, that wife, you have say and right. And husband, you have say and right. And what that does, right, if, if you're a step behind here, means a stalemate, right? Because you're both going, well, then I can just like say, nope, because I have the right, and your body is mine, and so I say no. And so do you see what he's saying? He's like, if, if we're walking into a stalemate, then we've got to like learn to do this together. That there is a mutualness to this. That means if the husband is supposed to love the wife like Christ loves the church, then it means he serves, and it's sacrificial. Christ does not demand, right? He doesn't draw lines in the sand and say, serve me, do for me. Do you see what I've done for you? That is not the attitude of Christ. And so if, if, if for husbands, if they would walk into a relationship and then have that demeanor of saying, I'm the head, serve me, that is not, right, Christian marriage or Christian expectation. There's this mutual submission and serving and looking to honor one another. And that's the beauty of marriage, right? That it's two people walking in and looking at each other and saying this, I know you're junk and you know mine and I still choose you and I still am going to love you and I'm still going to pursue you even though I know all this stuff that's actually not very attractive at all. Because God chooses us. He loves us knowing our sin. It's not that we come to Him clean and fresh and good and say, pick me now. It was at our worst that He demonstrated His love for us. It's at our worst that He chose us and that He sanctifies and cleanses us. And so in marriage, this mutual kind of cleansing and sanctification is happening as we pursue Jesus together. And so it means some awkwardness. And it means right? Some learning from one another. Because the second thing is this, that communication is assumed, that there's no demands. Look at verse 5. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, then come back together again. That all takes conversation, right? You can't come to an agreement without having a conversation. So what it's saying is he's like, not only is this mutual, he's like, there's, there's this assumption of communication. 
And depending on the family that you grew up in, the church that you grew up in, whether it was a believing family or not, this might be a really hard thing to talk about. Right? You're kind of like, talk about anything. I don't talk about sex, right? Like, you go stand in that room, and I'll stand in this room, and we'll text. You know, like, like I don't want to look at you while we're talking about, like, that, and yet Paul is saying, there's got to be conversation, right? Because we are scarred. Because you walk into this with, with scars from abuse, from scars from past relationships, with baggage, right? With these things that were not what are meant to be and not what intended and yet, they're real, and they're broken. We have to deal with them. And if we are going to love and serve one another, then this is one of those areas where we're going to do it, right? Like, we're going to, we're going to have to be patient. And so, we're going to have to have talks about, right, do we need counseling? We're going to have to have, to have talks about frequency. We're going to have to have talks about pain and hurt. And that means having awkward conversations, but we do it because we are attempting to be, right, reflective of the love that God has for His bride in our marriage. Verse 5, just practically, there's no, there shouldn't be any long lapses, right, of sexual activity in marriage. It's like, look, there may be these periods where you agree for a while to deprive one another. But don't do it for long. Like, and let it be a conversation. What that means is you don't use sex as a weapon. You do not weaponize it. You are not punishing your spouse, right, by depriving them. Now, look, right, there's illness and there's pregnancy and there's different things that, like, there's this agreement. We understand and we're going to talk about it and then we're going to come back. But he's like, you don't weaponize this gift that you've been given. The husband, verse 3, should not give, sorry, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband's. Um, sex, sexual activity should not be a, like a duty, right? It shouldn't be this thing of like, oh, fine, right? It's not meant to be that. It's meant to be this mutual thing. But it also means that at some point there may be times where that's there is a little more like of just, okay, for the sake of us, I'm not ready, but okay, right? Like there's no, there's no real reason, right? So Paul's saying like, look, it shouldn't always be like, fine, right? That's not what it should look like. He's like, but occasionally it might, right? Occasionally, that we're not going to deprive one another. The fifth thing is this. Marriage and sexual activity is not the pinnacle of humanity. It's not. It is a gift, and it is a blessing, but it is not the pinnacle. And that's, this is almost like a teaser for, for, for next week and the next couple weeks that we're going to look at singleness, and he's going to talk about his own experience, and we're going to see that he's gonna, he wants us to see that marriage is a gift. And he's also going to say this, singleness is a gift. They're both gifts. It's not that one is better than the other. They're just different gifts, and we need to see it as the blessing 
that it is. And so one of the ways at the end of chapter 6, remember he says, I want you to flee immorality, which immorality is any sexual activity outside of marriage. And one of the ways that you flee it is by being in a married relationship. That's one of the ways that we flee it. It's the proper channel for it. But it also means this, that if right now, if you're pursuing like sexual satisfaction in any way outside of your married spousal relationship, then you're not trusting God with it. And so whether this is the things that you're viewing or conversations that you're having or um, emotional affairs that are taking, like if any of those things are taking place, but you're still married, and it's like, okay, I'm still physically present, but I'm actually finding gratification elsewhere, you're not trusting God that He has given you the outlet that you're supposed to have. Right? Like that's just, he's just saying, like, this is the channel for it. It's between husband and wife alone. And then finally, he's just going to say, look, marriage is a gift. Singleness is a gift. And so we have this gift from God, like that's salvation, and with salvation, you get the Holy Spirit. It's not like, okay, y'all get it, half of you get the Holy Spirit, three of you, right? Like, if you know Jesus, you get it. That's just part of it. Salvation comes with the Holy Spirit. It comes with eternity. Those are the, like, all believers get them. But then there are, like, grace gifts, right? And it's why we're gifted in different ways, because there are some that are doled out to different people at different times and different amounts of it. And so marriage is a gift that not all are given. Singleness is a gift that not all are given. Paul, we're not sure, was either single or he was a widower. If you look down at verse 7, I wish that all were as, as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. And so later on, we're going to see from Paul that he is currently not married. And so whether that's he's a lifelong bachelor or he is now a widower, he's not married. And so he's like, right. And so what this teaches us, you notice what he says, I wish all were like me. And you might think, well, man, Paul has a pretty low view of marriage. Really, it's more of like our tendency to just kind of divide around those who are like us, right? And so young couples with young kids like kind of all gather together because there's just a lot of crazy, right? And people without kids are kind of like, we don't want to be around that, <laughs> right? Like the people just gather. But what Paul is saying is he's, he's addressing the whole church. He doesn't say, hey, if you're not married, go get a cup of coffee. We'll talk to you later. He's writing the letter to the church because we're a family. And we're not supposed to gather like with like. And yet we see that even Paul has that tendency of like, I wish you were like me because I get it and I understand it and I, my illustrations would work better, Right? But he's saying, like, we all have been given gifts, and they're not to be used to say, if you're not married and you're, um, you're celibate and you've got this gift of singleness, you don't get to hold it over a married couple and say, I'm so much more spiritual than you. I don't need a husband. I don't need a wife. And married, you don't get to stand and say, God has given me the gift of marriage, and look how much more of a full person I am. I have more of humanity, right? Because I've lived in a full experience. They are different gifts given by a good father for the benefit of the body. And we're going to look more at what that looks like next week. But would we just hear this? Marriage is difficult. Singleness is difficult. Parenting is difficult. 
If you're a widow or a widower, it is difficult. If you are a divorcee, it is, right? Do you notice the common theme? It doesn't matter where you're at, what life stage you're at. There's just a difficulty to it. And the difficulties are different, and that's why we have to be family. Because it's, different, it's difficult to be single, whether by choice or whether it's been brought upon you through divorce. And it's difficult to be married, right? And we don't say, well, my difficulty, you know, it's I get this many points and you've only got this many points, right? Like, we just minister to one another. We walk with one another. We share with one another. We pray for one another. We bear one another's burdens. We grab each other by the arms, and we pursue treasuring Jesus together in whatever life stage we are currently in. That's what Paul's saying. He's like, look, we're in different places, and he's going to walk through the rest of 1 Corinthians 7, ministering to each of these groups. And the reason he leaves everyone in the room for it is because he wants singles to hear about marriage. And he wants married people to be reminded of what it means, like, for widowers and for those who are divorced, for those who aren't yet married, right? Like, it's meant for all of us. Church of Jesus is sufficient. And so this morning, if you long for nothing more than to be married and you're not, Jesus is sufficient. He is enough in your waiting. And if you're married this morning and your marriage is anything but what you had hoped it would be, Jesus is enough. He is sufficient to minister to you in the midst of that, to bring about hope and transformation and peace. If you are divorced, if you're a widower or a widow, Jesus is sufficient. His grace is enough And the common kind of call to us in that is to trust Him. It's to treasure Him. It's to pursue Him and to believe that each morning His mercy is new. And it is sufficient for the troubles of that day. Look, I know pretty much everyone in the room is affected personally or in other relationships. You are scarred. Would you walk out of here this morning not feeling guilt, not feeling beat up, but would you know there is hope, right? Like wherever you're at this morning, if there is despair, that doesn't have to be the end of your story. Like that there is hope, that there is not just lack of peace, there's not just conflict in relationships. There is peace because God has put us at peace with Himself, and so He can put us at peace with one another. That there is mercy, that if you're thinking about the, the, the shame of your past, there is forgiveness. Remember what Paul says even just in the last chapter? He goes, you have been sanctified and cleansed and washed, right? That he purifies, that he's not going, yeah, not you. That's too much. He doesn't say that. And so whether it's abuse that's been brought in or whether it's a, abuse that you have brought in, Right, whether it's sin committed against you or sin that you have committed or both and, that he is merciful and gracious and the grace of God far outruns sin. It far outruns it. That he can take the darkest night and make it as white as snow. There is forgiveness. There is, get this, satisfaction and contentment. Right? There is a better motivation. There is freedom for you who are bound. There is freedom in Christ. 
And so we have this message to tell those who are addicted. We have this message to tell those who are hurting. We have this message to tell those who are lonely, who are not content, who are not satisfied, right? That in Christ, He affects the stage that you're in right now. And it's why Paul has said, do not be deceived. Like that we, our tendency is to become so ingrained in our sin to begin to think it's normal. And then we just begin to walk away from Jesus. And he says, I want you to trust me. I want you to trust me with your singleness. I want you to trust me with your loneliness. I want you to trust me with your marriage. That he transforms. He's enough. And the thing I love maybe most about how we do this at Redeemer is this, is that there's no period on the end of the sermon this morning, right? We hit comma, and we enter into conversation, and we're going to pick this up in 1 Corinthians 7, 8 next week, right? Like that we're, we're not saying, okay, we've said everything there is to know. Hope you got it. Good. All right, let's go. But that we want to be family, and so we're trying to open up a conversation that says, how do we pursue and, and treasure Jesus together in the midst of this, right? In a conversation that our tendency is to blush and to ignore it and to suffer alone and silent. No longer, right? So to some degree, I feel like this morning was just a really long introduction that says, okay, the sermon will be next week, <laughs> right? As we begin to look at the bulk of chapter 7. Um, look, if you need someone to talk to this morning, to pray with, if you need to confess something, if you just need someone to just put their hand on your shoulder and pray for you without saying a word, there's going to be some men and women in the back of the room. If right now you've got something right here that needs to come out, it's just welled up in your throat, do not walk out that door without telling someone, without grabbing someone, whether it's those folks in the back of the room or someone else, because here's the thing, you're going to walk out and you're going to lunch and you're going to say, I'll do it at GC, and you won't. Because it'll get easier not to. If the Lord is just pulling something out of you into the light, right, where the truth sets us free, you say it this morning. You find someone you trust, whether it's in your gospel community, a leader, someone in the back, and just share it, right? Like, let's walk in the freedom that Christ has given. If you just need someone to pray for for cleansing. Let's do that. So the band's going to come back up. You move if you need to move. You grab somebody if you need to grab somebody. Stand if you want to sing to your king who has freed you. Sit if the Spirit is ministering to you. You respond as you are being ministered to this morning. Let me pray for us. Father, you are merciful and kind and good And Lord, would those words not be cliche this morning? Lord, as we think about the shame, the guilt, the fear, the scarring from our past, and maybe even our present, God, would you just say that, would you just remind us that you make all things new? That you take dead things and make them alive? That you take cold and stony hearts of sin and you make them soft again as you stamp them? Ezekiel tells us, Father, that you restore and transform and give life and give hope. Father, that's who you are. 